Is everybody ready for fall time? I am ready. End of summer, amen? No, not so much, huh? Some of you guys like the heat. Me, not so much. I sweat all the time. I'm hot. I, I've said I've had menopause since like the mid like my mid twenties, and I think something's broken. But the doctors say my, you know, you know, what do they call that? The gland, you know, it's it's working, but uh, I don't know. I think I got an issue. But uh, you know, so we're gonna get in this morning. This today's lesson is gonna be a little different. It's gonna be more of like a history lesson. Uh, if for those of you who are here who haven't been attending our Sunday morning Bible studies, we are doing a year-long study. It's called The Life of Christ, The Life of Christ Challenge. And so a lot of the sermons, not all the sermons, but um, some of the sermons are going to be uh, a continuation of that study. So I'll, do, I'll have some, uh, some cliff notes and we'll kind of uh, you know, talk about a few of the things that were talked about in the morning uh, Bible study. So that would hopefully encourage you then to attend morning Bible study. So you can actually uh, keep up, follow along, and have the same information that we're all having. And so this morning we're going to get into, at the right time, God sent forth his son. And that idea comes from Galatians 4 and 4, which we'll look at in a minute, that we talked about this morning in Bible study. But we understand that throughout history, God has used natural events, he's used nations, he's used cultures, he's used individuals, he's even used animals to bring about his, uh, the fulfillment of his will. People who study the Bible can oftentimes see God's providential hand working throughout man, throughout nation, throughout culture to bring about his glorious will. And so as we study this out here this morning, throughout those centuries, God's divine oversight of world affairs, brethren, has prepared men, has prepared nations for what? For the coming of the Messiah and for the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so as we look at this, our Lord, at the perfect uh, moment in human history, had sent forth his Son. The first passage of Scripture you see on the screen behind me is Galatians chapter 4 and verse 4. And what does it tell us? It says, but when the fullness of time came, it says that God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law. And so... We're going to give a brief history lesson, but then we're going to look at the idea of being born of a woman and born under the law, and what it means to be the fulfillment of time, the fullness of time. And so, as we look at this, brethren, I want you to be able to kind of focus in and, and try to pay attention to where you could see the hand of God working throughout history as we give a brief history lesson here this morning. We see God's hand in the dispersion. Who remembers what the dispersion is, right? The dispersion is simply just the scattering of the Jews uh, during time of captivity. And we go back and we know that the first, uh, the first dispersion, the first uh, uh, had taken place in 721 B.C. with the Assyrians uh, when they overtook the northern kingdom of Israel. And they basically got absorbed into uh, the, to the nations around them. Because uh, Judah went on to, uh, to, to go for another 125, 135 years before they were taken captive in about 588, 587 approximately by the, uh, by, by, the, by the Babylonians. And so they were the southern kingdom of Judah. So you have that 130, 125 years. But you also had that they would be prophesied that they would be in captivity for 70 years, right? And that somebody named Cyrus was going to release them, who we'll talk about in a minute. The point is, 200 years had basically gone by. And many of those, uh, the northern kingdom of Israel, they got absorbed into the various nations and the various uh, areas in which they were held in, uh, captive. Uh, all of those who would have been alive would have died. 
And those who have actually, uh, that who would have grew up in those areas, grew up with the pagan influence. Kind of like in 400 years, why did, it, uh, why did God need to give the law of Moses, the Ten Commandments, and, all, and send all the prophets to the, to the people of Israel that were taken out of Egyptian bondage? Because all they knew for 400 years was paganism. Well, that's what essentially was happening with the northern kingdom. For 200 years, they were inundated with paganism. And so while they still had a priesthood, it was no longer of the line of Aaron. And we're going to talk about more of that next week. And so as we get into today's lesson, we see God's hand in the dispersion. And we're going to, you'll see how this comes about as we talk about this uh, here this morning. Although a large portion of the Jews had elected to stay behind, even though during the time of King Cyrus he, he, uh, he was fulfilling the prophecy, he allowed them to, to be released after the 70 years of bondage. Many of them chose to stay in bondage, but more of them chose to actually be spread and go out into other areas. And so many other Jews moved throughout various kingdoms and not necessarily going back to Palestine. When you hear me say Palestine, as I mentioned in this morning's Bible study, Canaan, Palestine, uh, uh, the, the, the land of promise are all one and the same. We're talking about the same land mass. We're talking about the same area. Palestine, Canaan, uh, the promised land, all one and the same. And so as you look at this, many of those uh, Jews, instead of going back to Jerusalem after captivity, they went to what is considered greater Palestine, meaning Egypt. And during the time of Alexander the Great, he had conquered so much land so quickly over a three-year period that he overtook the Medo-Persian Empire and he expanded it, uh, expanded it mightily. Uh, he expanded it into Europe, to Northern Africa, into Asia. And so all these Jews he then would take, he took them as colonists and he had colonies of Jews spread throughout Northern Africa, spread throughout Europe and Asia and everything else. And why was that important? It's important because it was setting the stage for the missionary journeys that the Apostle Paul and Barnabas and many of the other disciples would be going on to bring, to bring the Messiah, to bring the, the gospel of Jesus Christ out into these, uh, these distant lands and distant areas. So the, the, the gospel essentially had went out to all the world in the very first century of A.D. And so it is little wonder that in James, in, in, that James speaks of in Acts chapter 15, he mentions Moses of old time has in every city, even in today's age, been preached. He has been preached throughout the Roman Empire. He has been preached throughout uh, Persia's empire and the Grecian Empire. Why? Because even though they had times of relative peace in those different, uh, under those different empires, when, they, when the Jews were spread throughout the land, what did they take with them? The Messianic prophecies. They took with them uh, the gospel, or not the gospel, the, um, the Torah, the law of Moses. They took with them the prophetic writings. And so you're going to see how God's hand, it was working even in the dispersion, even in the scattering of these Jews who were taken into captivity, spread throughout the known world at that time for God's ultimate purpose when he was going to send the Christ. Amen. Brethren, the Jewish colonies became strategic uh, bases for Christian missionaries in, in future years. So the extent of the dispersion can also be seen in the makeup of the audience. You guys remember in Acts chapter 2 when Peter gives the first gospel sermon, we know that the first Pentecost after Jesus' resurrection, Peter gave what is known as the first gospel sermon in Acts chapter 2. And you can see the Jews of the dispersion, those who were scattered, have actually mentioned in Acts chapter 2. 
Uh, in Acts chapter 2 and verse 9, it says the Jews of the Eastern Dispersion are included in the phrases Parthians and Medes, Elamites, those who were of Mesopotamia. What is it talking about? What is Mesopotamia known for? Alexander the Great in the Grecian Empire. So it was talking about those Jews who were made colonists during that time of the Grecian Empire. The Jews of the Western Dispersion were mentioned by the Jews who heard Jesus teach and who heard Jesus preach. And they spoke of the dispersion of the Greeks in John chapter 7 and verse 35. In Luke, he referenced the Jews of the Western Dispersia. In Acts chapter 6, Acts chapters 9, and Acts chapter 11, it talks about the Hellenist Jews, which was then talking about the Jews of the Western Dispersion. So you could see right there in Acts chapter 2, Peter's even making mention of these various Jews who were in all these outlying areas that had taken place over the previous three empires before you got to the Roman Empire. We also see, as we move on from the dispersion, we also see that God's hand was moving in the life of Cyrus, the king of Persia, to allow the Jews to return from Babylonian captivity and to go back and to start to rebuild the temple, to rebuild Jerusalem that we learn about in 2 Chronicles as well as Ezra and other places. And what's amazing about the, the prophecy of Cyrus is that Isaiah had prophesied that 150 years before it happened. But lots of prophecies were, uh, were mentioned hundreds of years before they happened. But there's only one prophecy that was mentioned, and he actually names them by name. He mentions Cyrus by name 150 years before he's ever even born. Brethren, that's prophecy. In Isaiah chapter 44, verse 28 on the screen behind me, God said this of King Cyrus through the prophet Isaiah. It is I who says of Cyrus... He is my shepherd, and he will perform all my desire. And he declares of as and he declares of Jerusalem, she will be built, and of the temple your foundation will be laid. And that is exactly what we find in Scripture. That's exactly what takes place in Scripture. God not only names them by name, the king of a future empire that wasn't even in existence yet. But he actually names him by name, tells him what's going to happen and what he's going to do. So again, he used him, in a sense, as his shepherd to bring about God's glorious and powerful will. Brethren, even through Cyrus, even though Cyrus allowed the Jews to return home after the 70 years that were prophesied, right? Jews, there were more Jews who lived outside of Palestine in the first century during Jesus' ministry. There were more Jews that lived outside of the promised land, outside of Palestine, than lived actually in Palestine. And so that's why if, during for the Jewish feasts, if they were physically able, like on Pentecost and others, they had to make the pilgrimage to where? To Jerusalem, from their hometowns. And so we can see, brethren, how God's hand is working through history, going all the way back to Daniel chapter 2, all the way back to the vision of the great statue, and uh, Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar wanting to have his dream analyzed. He wanted to be told what this meant. And it said that there, it represents four kingdoms. And those four kingdoms, you've seen how God's hand was working to bring about the fullness of time that Galatians chapter 4 and 4 talked about. Brethren, we look at, we see also God's hand working through Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great, uh, he had spread the Grecian Empire 
eastward, much further than the, uh, than the, uh, than the Babylonians and the Persians had ever even dared to go. He went, he went beyond the eastern border of India, and he, uh, what we know as modern-day India. Uh, he introduced Greek language. He, in, he introduced Greek civilization and culture to vast portions of the ancient world. Alexander the Great was the male goat uh, going back to Daniel chapter 8. If you study out Daniel chapter 8, it talks about a male goat that comes and rushes a ram, and the ram is known as Persia, and the goat is known as Alexander the Great in the Grecian Empire, and you could see that even Josephus, if you were to go back and study out his historical writings, uh, that he mentions, he connects the male goat uh, of Daniel chapter 8 with Alexander the Great, and how he took down the ram, meaning, uh, meaning the Persian Empire. And so you could see God's hand working in all these things. You could see God's hand working in the rise and the eventual fall of the Roman Empire. The early church grew eventually, uh, it grew and eventually flourished under the production of Rome. But you say, Dave, I thought you said that Rome was this evil empire and how they persecuted the Jews, you know, or persecuted Christianity. And they did, but not yet. And so we see that, remember, brethren, that the early church, uh, early church grew, grew and flourished because of the Roman Empire. It wasn't until uh, Emperor Nero in 64 AD that the persecution uh, upon Christianity uh, ramped up to a whole new level. And it was in 64 AD, going for an additional 249 years, that Rome tried to destroy Christianity, try to wipe it from the face of the earth. But what do we see? That means that for the first 31 years of Christianity, that there was relative peace. Yes, there was Jewish persecution, but that was nothing compared to what Rome had done to the, to the early Christians. And so for 31 years, they took advantage of the, um, what is called the Pax Romana. The Pax Romana is known as the Roman Peace. And during these 31 years, the early Christians traveled on over 50,000 miles of well-paved roads uh, that were stone-paved, uh, well-kept roads uh, that they were able to use for missionary journeys to take the message out to all the surrounding towns and villages and countries. So these 50,000 miles of road went throughout the empire. Brethren, this is known as the Pax Romana, which means time of Roman peace. And as the people traveled the land, they had the protection of the legion, the Roman legions that were so infamous in history and so famous throughout history for their cruelty. But in the beginning, they, had, they protected the roadways so that way you could have commerce and you could have travel. They also protected the seas because there were pirates back in those days. And so they had the Roman Navy protected the Mediterranean Sea so you could have safe passage as you were traveling over the sea. Brethren, in the first century A.D. was the time that, that was prophesied by Isaiah. Isaiah in chapter 2 and verse 2 through 4, I'm not going to read the whole thing. It just says, when God would set up his house and all his nations shall, uh, shall flow to it. Think about that. That's prophesied like 750 years before we ever even get to the, to the first century. But notice what the apostle Paul said to young Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 15. He says, it is I who says of Cyrus, oh, next uh, passage, 1 Timothy 3 and 15, but in, in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how, to, how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the support of the truth. Well, why is that important? Because what he wrote about in regards to the, to the house of God, to the church of the living God, the pillar of the truth, in Isaiah chapter 2 and verses 2 through 4, he talks about when God would set up his house. 
And all nations were going to flow to him. What did it mean by all nations? All the nations that God had already spread all of the Jews out to throughout the Persian Empire, throughout the Grecian Empire, throughout the Roman Empire, that were strategic bases for missionary uh, journeys and, uh, and Christian missionaries to use as bases, right? To further the gospel. And so what we see here is that these individuals, um, these individuals then used the protection of Rome in these first 31 years of the church to, to really help the church to grow and to flourish. So that's why in Galatians 4 and 4, he talks about in the fullness of time, God had sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. And so you could see how all this, that God is working, his hand is working, his providential hand is working throughout all of these empires. Brethren, this was the time also when the prophet Joel looked forward into history and he prophesied, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. He talks about that in Joel chapter 2. Well, why is that important? Because that's exactly what is mentioned by Peter in Acts chapter 2 in verses 14 through 21. Brethren, the kingdom of heaven came into being at the exact moment, at the perfect time, or as Mark would say in Mark 1, 14 and 15, now, after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee, preaching the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. You need to repent and you need to believe in the gospel. Brethren, Paul calls it the fullness of time because all of these things were aligned. All of these things were put in place to bring about the Christ, to bring about the Messiah at the perfect time in human history. So that way, the, the, the church could flourish under all that God had put in place. Amen. And so, brethren, for 31 years it flourished, even though there was Jewish persecution, it flourished, and we know, brethren, that by the time the Nero uh, crept in with his uh, persecution and then extending, the church already had a rock-solid foundation. Amen. And that there was nobody who was going to be able to upset the apple cart. We know that the final piece of the puzzle we learn about in Mark chapter 1 and verse 2 and 3. Where John the baptizer comes on the scene. He's the last piece of the puzzle to make the crooked path straight for Christ. And in Mark chapter 1 and verse 2 and 3 it says... As it is written by Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Brethren, can you see, as we go through this, and we're just looking at a, just a brief little snippets of history, how you can see God working through these different empires to bring about the fullness of time, the perfect time that was, uh, that, that was available to bring about the Messiah. We learn about in the Greco-Roman world, brethren, when Jesus was born in the first century A.D., there was general expectation amongst the Jews as well as Gentiles that there was going to be a great and mighty king that was going to be born of the Jews. Why is it that the Gentiles, we get the, the Jews, we understand them, but why, why was it that the Gentiles were expecting the Jews to have a great and mighty king born of them? Because of the dispersion. Going back over the last the 400 years before Christ, the Jews were spread throughout all these kingdoms. And the, all of these kingdoms, guess what they took with them? The Messianic prophecies. They took with them the Torah. They took with them the prophetic writings. And so God was getting everybody prepared. By the time you get to the Greco-Roman world, it was a time that the Jews had been spread all over the world by Alexander the Great. 
The law of Moses and the Messianic prophecies were taken to the people, both Jew and Gentile. And so the idea that a king or Messiah was coming was absolutely correct. It wasn't a secret. The Gentiles had heard of the Jews, of all of these things that they're expecting. That is why when you study out the Bible, who was it that came to Jerusalem? Uh, who was it that came to Bethlehem looking for the king, the king of the Jews, to be born? It was the wise men. The wise men were from Persia. How did they hear about Jesus, the, the Messiah, the Christ? How did they hear about this? Oh, because of the Jews that were in their areas. And they were talking about the Messianic prophecies. They were talking about the law. They were talking about what God was going to do to send the Redeemer, to send the Messiah that they had long been waiting for. And so the wise men knew to come looking for the king born of the Jews when they seen his star in the sky. Brethren, as the gospel of Christ was spread throughout Judea, Samaria, and in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, it says, even to the ends of the earth. And that is why the Apostle Paul says, by the end of the first century, the, uh, or by the, uh, by, the, by the time of the middle, really, of the first century, the gospel had already gone out, had already gone out into most of the known world, all of the known world. Why? Because of all of the groundwork that had been set in place in order for that to take place. They used those 50,000 miles of roads. They used Roman protection and Pax Romana, the Roman peace, in order for 30 years to establish the church to where then nobody would be able to speak against it. Nobody would be able to stand against the power of God. Brethren, when the gospel went out into all these different places, all these different regions, it found a pagan world. It found the Gentile people who were longing for something better. You see, because the grip that the Roman Greco gods used to have on them had been fading. It no longer had the same grip on them because of all of the moral corruption that was so prevalent in paganism. And these individuals were looking, they were hungry for a, for a better way, for a, for a hope. They were hungry for something that many people in our, in our, today, our age in our era, are also hungry for. We see the mass corruption in society. We see corruption within the governments. We see how people even today are longing for something better than what, than what we're trying to offer them in society. And so they're longing to hear what? The gospel of Jesus Christ. They, they're longing to give themselves over to something that matters. And that's why Jesus needs to be preached and preached often. Brethren, as we look at the scriptures here this morning, we understand and we ask ourselves, what are the implications of the fullness of time? Well, it tells us that he was born of a woman. And as you think about the idea of Jesus being born of a woman, it's a great mystery. It's a great mystery because Jesus is the Son of God. He's 100% God. He's 100% man. And this is something that you must accept by faith. You must accept the idea that Jesus is both 100% man, 100% God, because that is what the scriptures teach us. The rejection of Jesus as the incarnate Son of God was something that was really prevalent in the late 80s, early 90s AD. That is the reason why John wrote his gospel. That was the reason why John wrote his epistles. Look over what it says in 1 John chapter uh, uh, 4 and verse 1 through 3. As we, as we read through 1 John 4, 1 through 3, I want you to replace the word spirit with teacher. And I want you to read it with this in mind, because it's talking about teachers. Beloved, do not believe every teacher, but test the teachers to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have already gone out into the world. But this you know, the teacher of God, every teacher 
that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every teacher that does not confess Jesus is, Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, right? It's talking about the false teachers that have already gone out into the world, of which you have heard that was coming and now already is. So what is it talking about there, testing the spirits? It's talking about testing the teachers, making sure your, your evangelists and your elders and your teachers are teaching things that, are, that align with the very word of God. And if they don't align with the word of God, they need to be called out. Not with a, 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 a mean spirit or not with a, a, a aha, I gotcha type of mindset. They need to be called out with gentleness and love. They need to be taught more perfectly. And if they choose not to repent, then there's the idea of disfellowship that enters into the picture. But that's down the road. And so, brethren, we look at this here this morning. When it comes to Jesus being the Son of God, we may never be able to explain the mystery of Jesus' virgin birth. But that's okay. I don't need to be able to explain uh, Jesus' virgin birth. I also can't explain how, how God spoke things into his existence. I also can't explain how he performed all his uh, different miracles. But that's okay, because I don't need to explain these things because we have reference of them from eyewitness testimony. I don't need to sit there and try to tell you how God did everything he did because I would be making things up and I'd be lying because he never gave us the scriptures in order to know how he does everything that he possibly does. But we know that we have eyewitness testimony. You go all the way back to the Garden of Eden. What happened? Oh, there was eyewitness testimony. Wasn't there this guy named Adam? Oh, and this woman named Eve? Then they get the boot out of the garden because of sin. And guess what? They were able to pass on down to all their descendants everything from creation and moving forward. Right? How they walked with God in the cool of the garden. What about even Noah's ark? You go back and you see Noah's, uh, the story of Noah's ark. After the, the, the boat comes to rest, they get off the ark. Noah and his descendants, guess what they did? They passed on the history lessons that they took from before the flood and post-flood. And they passed that on as eyewitness testimony. And the list can go on and on and on. God has never, um, has never wanted us to have a blind faith. And so, brethren, the Bible, when Alan analyzed over time, which it has been for thousands of years, has been known as the most accurate book of history the world has ever known. I remember when I first met with Sam years ago, and uh, I, I just remember having the first conversation with him, and when he came to, uh, came to the knowledge of the Lord, he said, when, the first time I started reading one of the Bibles, he's like, I thought to myself, man, whoever wrote this Bible really knows their history. And it struck me because he was somebody who grew up where? In Iraq, which was modern-day Babylon, right? So Iraq sits where the Babylonian Empire was. And so he's reading the Old Testament history. He's like, man, whoever wrote this really knows their stuff. And so you look at this, brethren. We know that as we think about eyewitness testimony, we think about the Bible being the Word of God is known as the most accurate book of history. It is abounding with eyewitness testimony, and it matches even what the non-inspired writers wrote. I talked about uh, in, the, in, the, in the lesson this morning, we mentioned just briefly, and we'll look at more as we go throughout more lessons, but there are non-inspired writings, both friendly and hostile to Christianity. But, the, but the, what the one thing that they all have in common, they don't try to deny the things that the Bible teaches, they try to explain it away. But they confirm Jesus' existence. Even the ones that are hostile confirm his existence, confirm that he did miracles, confirm that he resurrected from the dead. 
Why is that important? Because these weren't Christians. These were people who were trying to disprove it, but they couldn't say that he didn't exist because everybody knew that he did. And then the people, the, the, the people uh, that were living during, his, during their time would have called them out because of the, of the, uh, if, if they wrote an error. So, brethren, you study out history, and we start to understand that God hasn't called the people of old. He hasn't called us today to have a blind faith. God has proved, uh, provided proof uh, of his sovereignty, of his power, of his love, and of his wrath since the beginning of time. And all you have to do is study out the scriptures to see these things. Jesus was born, it says, in the Old Testament of the law. In the fullness of time, Jesus came into the world, born of a woman and born of the law. And so we're going to transition to the idea of born of the law for a few seconds. We know that he was circumcised on the eighth day and he was presented in the temple to fulfill the law, as we learn about in Luke chapter 2. We also know that when he was uh, 12 years old, his, his parents make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem and he stays behind them thinking that he was in the caravan as they were leaving. He stays behind and they can't find him after a day. They come in a panic searching for him they find him in the temple and he says do you not know i must be about my father's in my father's house and about my father's business and so brethren you you see these things but what is the point jesus fulfilling the law and afterwards it says he continued in subjection to his parents in luke chapter 2 and he fulfilled what it says in exodus chapter 20 that you are to honor your father and mother and so he remained in subjection to them, keeping the law as he was supposed to, as a, as a faithful Jew. Jesus was born under the law to redeem those who were under the law. And in this idea of redeeming means to buy back. But to buy back often referred to the buying of slaves, buying back of slaves. And so Paul must have had in mind primarily Jewish Christians because they were liberated, as we learn in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 13, they were liberated from the curse of the law. Why and how? By the very blood of Jesus Christ that had set them free. Brothers and sisters, before I close this down, we think about Christ, and we think about uh, even the Gentile Christians, right? That we are not to continue on in our futile ways. Each and every one of us here, if you're not a Jew, then you're, you're a, you were a Gentile before you came to Christ. And so I'd venture to say all of us are Gentile converts to Christianity in this auditorium this morning. And I want you to understand what Peter has to say in this next passage of Scripture. In 1 Peter, in chapter 1, in verse 17 through 19, if you address the father, if you address as father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourself in fear during the time of stay on earth, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold or from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with the very precious blood, the blood of an unblemished lamb, spotless, the blood of Christ. Brethren, as I close this lesson down, we need to remember that God's timing was perfect. That's what Galatians 4 and 4 was talking about. That's what Mark 1, 14 and 15 was talking about. And we know that he sent his son at the perfect time when there was the universal language, the Koine Greek. There was the Pax Romana, the Roman peace, for the first 31 years of Christianity. And there was the building of massive networks of roads in order to interconnect the various uh, communities, villages and towns without throughout the empire of Rome, which allowed the establishment of Christianity to take off even faster than it might have. And so, brethren, you look at how God's hand was working throughout all of history, throughout, uh, throughout kings, throughout nations, throughout peoples, even God used beasts 
and uh, bringing, uh, bringing about his will. Were, was there persecution in the early church? Yes, but it was Jewish persecution. It was still persecution, but nothing in comparison to what Rome did to them, starting with Nero. So, brethren, God's timing is perfect. It was ti his timing was perfect in the first century, and his timing is perfect today. What do I mean by that his timing is perfect today? We may not always understand God's timing when it comes to our prayers, when it comes to how and why he does things. But we, don't, but we, but we have to accept by faith that God knows what he's doing. He's all-powerful, all-knowledgeable, all-present. God knows what he's doing. We don't need to know the who, the what, the why, the where, the when. We don't need to know how God, God does anything and everything. But what we do need to do is trust that God has the best in mind, our best in mind, his creation's best in mind, and all that God does, he does for our good. Brethren, you don't need to know the who, what, why, when, and where. You need to just trust in your creator. Trust in Jehovah God. Trust in Jesus Christ and his cleansing blood. Brethren, if you're here today and you're hearing this message and you are not a child of God, but you desire to put on Christ in baptism, brethren, you could come forward today, and you could be baptized for the remission of your sins. If you're here today, and you're not, and maybe you've been away from the church for a while, and your desire is to, 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 to come back into the sheepfold, to come back into the, uh, the presence of God, and to get back to work amongst his people, you could be restored here this morning if you know you've been away for a while. Brethren, if that is you here this morning, come forward as we stand and sing. The Song of Imitation.